here with Dr. Christine Shinkton. She is uh, president of Our Lady Cedar Wisdom College up in Barry's Bay, Ontario, four hours north of Toronto, president of the school. Uh, your specialty, though, is poetry, right? And yeah, literature? that's right. Well, mm -hmm. literature in general, but uh, poetry in particular, mm -hmm. because I love poetry. I write poetry. I'm a published poet, and I love to study poetry and to share my love for poetry with, with students and uh, anyone who's interested to talk about it. Ah. And tell us a little bit about your study, like your story. Where did you study? And sure. Well, I grew up in Ottawa, Ontario, and I went to Carleton University in Ottawa for my undergraduate studies. I did a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature. And um, that was good. I, I learned a lot. I read um, the, you know, great works of literature from you know, Beowulf to uh, up until contemporary literature. And then I went off to Oxford University in England to do postgraduate studies. So I did an MPhil in Victorian Literature. And then I, I did a, what they call a DPhil, which is basically a doctorate in, also in Victorian Literature. Is there a Carlton in the United States? You're right. I think it's in Minnesota. Okay. So not to be confused, it was <laughs> not. It was not that one that I went to. It was Carlton, in in Ottawa, ah. in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And what was Oxford like? Is that Oxford was great. It was, was a it? wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. I think the thing about Oxford is um, you value the whole experience, not just what you learn in the classroom, although that was great too, but meeting people from all over the world. Um, having access to incredible libraries. The Bodleian Library mm. in Oxford has just about any book you, you could want or mm. imagine. And then there are the bookstores, Blackwell's Bookstore, and college libraries on top of the Bodleian Library. I mean, it's just a book lover's paradise. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed my time, time at Oxford. The, the thing about Oxford, too, is you have a lot of freedom to explore intellectual uh, ideas, um, it's a, it's a bit less structured a curriculum, so uh, once you have your topic and a good supervisor, you can really explore and go deeply into a subject, mm -hmm. which I really did enjoy. I enjoyed mm -hmm. that freedom. And you had good mentors and teachers. That mm -hmm. were yes, really, yeah, yeah, especially for my doctorate. Yeah. Uh, I had a great supervisor uh, for, for my thesis, and uh, for Dr. Julian Thompson at Regents Park College. He uh, was a good, good guide and, uh, mm -hmm. and mentor for my thesis writing experience, which was, which was good. I was writing about a Victorian um, prison inspector by the name of Arthur Griffiths, Ma Major Arthur Griffiths. He was uh, one of uh, uh, the, the first national prison inspectors in England. That, that uh, title, that, that job came into existence in the 1870s, and he was mm -hmm. one of the first to take up that job. So he would go around by train around, around uh, various parts of England inspecting the prisons and seeing that they came up to a common standard, which was a new thing. Uh, and, and in his spare time, often while he was traveling on trains, he would write novels about criminals and about prisons and detectives. And I was just fascinated with all of, all of that. So I, I wrote wow. a biography of him and a study of his, um, his treatment of prisons and, and criminals and detectives and, and so forth. So uh, it, was, it was a great experience and, uh, of course, good training just in, in terms of managing a big writing project, you know, hundreds of pages long. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite, quite uh, an experience to have to manage that, that, uh, a writing project of that size. So you learn a lot of skills in terms of planning, outlining, um, having to break things down. I'm, you know, that's something I teach when I teach writing. You know, just break it down into manageable uh -huh. chunks. Know where you're going, know what you're trying to argue. But, but you can't write it all at once. You, you have to sort of think of it in terms of you know, different parts that support an, an overall work. So right. that's what I did with my thesis, and that's what my students do with their 500-word essays. Wow. Now, uh, what time period did he live in? He lived uh, from, a, from, let me see, 1838 to 1908. Okay. I imagine prisons were horrific back then, weren't they? Well, there, there was that. <laughs> there was that. He was trying to work to make it less so, yeah, make it yeah, less so, to yeah. have some common standards and ensure yeah. uh, that the, you know, the food quality was, was good, but mm -hmm. uh, not too good, but good enough. You <laughs> know. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing one of these shows, like I think it was a BBC show or something that said, it talked about, like, you know, if a guy was sent to prison, how his life, even if it was just like a, 
a shorter term. It just like would destroy his life if he was like a nobleman or something. Or oh, yeah. Upper mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. it was just like earth shattering. I, you know, it seemed like America, you can kind of get out and you can recover or whatever <laughs> to some degree. But <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, uh, forgiveness uh, was, was harder to achieve there in terms of you know, once your moral reputation, not just in terms of crime, but right. maybe even in terms of sexual morality, you know, a, yeah. a stain was that, was, that was it. You didn't get another chance. Oh. Yeah. And how many years were you there in Oxford? Altogether, it was five. Um, oh. I did come back in the midst of it to, to do a little bit of sessional or adjunct teaching at Carleton University, but altogether it was about five years. Mm. Mm -hmm. And some of the Victorian literature that you loved or that inspired you, what, what, would, what would those novels be? Okay, well, <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> I told you I love poetry, so uh -huh. some of my favorite poets are Matthew Arnold, uh, Tennyson. I know he's out of favor these days because, you know, he writes long poems and they <laughs> rhyme in a, in a very obvious way, but uh -huh. I think he was a brilliant poet. I think he um, deserves a comeback. Uh -huh. uh, I also love the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins, and um, he is still appreciated today, especially in Catholic circles. I think mm -hmm. people appreciate his, the genius he had for bringing together Catholic theology and, and just beautiful language that um, is, so, is so rich mm -hmm. uh, and, and sensuous in the best possible way. Um, so, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to compete with, with Gerard Manley Hopkins. And James Joyce, he was later, wasn't he? A little bit later, yeah, yeah modern, yeah, so modern. kind of early 20th century. And he was Protestant, wasn't he? Or? He, uh, he was raised Catholic. He was okay. raised Catholic and then turned against his, his Catholic yeah. faith. Yeah, he was very... Uh, had several axes to grind with, with the Catholic <laughs> Church. And uh, so, so, as far as I know, was, was something of an agnostic. I don't think he okay. was a practicing Christian after he abandoned his faith as a young man. I could be wrong about that, but um, that's, that's my impression. Was there like a Catholic writer during that time? Somebody had told me there was a Catholic... I think in the time period of Joyce, mm -hmm. it was kind of, it was more devout Catholic and wrote along those lines. Okay, let's see. Um, well, of course, um, Chesterton is is mm. also, you know, uh, early part of the 20th century. Right. Um, Belloc, Hilary Belloc, but they're mm. not so much writing fiction. Well, no, no Chesterton wrote novels. Yeah, Chesterton, yeah. they're not my, my favorite novels. They're good, but they're mm. not my favorite. Um, who else was, was writing uh, good Catholic fiction? I'm sure there are some obvious ones I'm, I'm not thinking of. T.S. Eliot, or Moi. Even Moi, yes, yes, okay, yes, yeah. That would, that would yeah. be a good one to, to consider um, from, uh, from a similar time period. Brideshead Revisited is a mm. wonderful Catholic novel. That is, that is a work of genius that I really yeah. appreciate. Mm -hmm. But you've taught a lot on um, Dante, right? The Divine Dante, Comedy. Yes. That's, That's your, my favorite, your favorite work to teach is wow. the Divine Comedy because it just has everything in it. Um, it's beautiful, um, beautiful from the point of view of, of Catholic theology, uh, but, but it brings in history, it brings in um, philosophy, uh, it brings in art, music, uh, even psychology, human psychology. It's all there and, um, and, and, and worked together in such a harmonious way that you know, you just sit back and say, "Wow, you know, he was uh, so talented to be able to bring all this together." And you've taught the course many times, and a few times. A few times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are like what are your students? What would they especially be responsive to? What aspect of his work? Mm. Well, of course, everyone. Uh, in general, readers, not just at Our Lady Seed of Wisdom College, but in general, are, are kind of fascinated with the Inferno mm -hmm. uh, because the, the sins there are, are so kind of, you know, kind of uh, shocking. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, we react to, we react to, to the, uh, the grotesque nature, right. uh, not just of their sins, but of the, the commensurate punishments that go with those, that go with those sins. Uh, so I think there, there is that kind of surface enjoyment, we could say, of, of just the, the bizarre, the unusual, the shocking, um, and, uh, and, and you know, my students will respond to that as well. 
but, um, but I encourage them and they are open to um, exploring and, and appreciating the, um, the beauty and the interest uh, that is contained in the Purgatorio and the Paradiso. Paradiso mm. is the hardest of the three to appreciate, mm. but well worth the effort. And um, so what do they respond to? Well, they're in a privileged position in that they, they understand and have studied a lot of the theology that is the context for and supports what Dante's doing in the Divine Comedy. So he's taking us um, through this journey, through, uh, through hell and the inferno, through the purgatory, and through paradise, paradise ultimately to the, the, the final destination, which is the beatific vision at, right. the, at the end. So we mm -hmm. go through this long, long journey to get to kind of the, the, the summit right. of, of, of our, our lives. So at least we all hope it will be our ultimate mm -hmm. destination is, is the beatific vision, the vision of the Trinity, which is just so breathtakingly beautiful that he, he can't even describe it, but he, you know, he sketches it out. And, in, in so far as you know, words can, can do that. So students respond to the way in which um, the theology and the philosophy that they've studied, and it, that is the backdrop for, for Dante's journey in the Divine Comedy, are, are, they come to life, right? They, mm -hmm. They're enfleshed in what Dante witnesses around him as he, he sees you know, the, the, the sinners being punished and how uh, the penitents being uh, transformed, being purified of their sins in the in Purgatorio, mm -hmm. and then finally, uh, what it looks like to actually embody virtue. What does virtue actually mm -hmm. look like? Um, the souls of the virtuous, you know, kind of embodying, so to speak, um, the the qualities that 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 we all strive for. Yeah, and that's I've heard it praised for that. Like his presentation of the virtues mm -hmm. was insightful I can't recall now what the particulars were but well what's yeah. what's really interesting I don't I don't know what what you're mm -hmm. thinking of but but one thing that strikes me yeah. is that he can he can even take what might otherwise be or what is mm -hmm. a, a vice and show that if corrected and steered in the right direction that mm -hmm. very vice can become a virtue or can be right. transformed into a virtue so okay. for example he has the amorous the amorous mm -hmm. in um, in the Paradiso, mm -hmm. and these are uh, in the lower levels of paradise. These are people who had they had flaws, right? They had um, kind of um, not fatal flaws, but 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 uh, imperfections, imperfections mm -hmm. in in their in their souls. Uh, but but once they converted and were willing to let God, you know, transform that, those very flaws became their strengths. So the amorous, for example, are people who you, they, they had a, a, a propensity towards lust, towards mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, libidinous passions. But once corrected, that passionate nature mm -hmm. then becomes this incredible uh, quality of being on fire for God. Mm. And so I think that's a pretty deep insight, right? right? That, right. That, that we don't have to despair just because we have you know, problematic mm -hmm. or sinful inclinations. Mm -hmm. um, if we let God transform those inclinations, they can actually become assets. Right. And I know this is to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, but <laughs> I know in the sports world sometimes, like things that make a guy a great coach or something, it might be drive or something, but it could be his, his weakness too, right? That right, he, right. Know. Yes. I think Dante saw that. I think he saw yeah. that. Uh, so. On the negative side, you know, they really can bring us down. There are actual yeah. souls in hell, right? He doesn't right. sugarcoat that. He, he's going to show <laughs> yeah. us. He's going to show us the reality. And as the pilgrim, so he's yeah. both the poet, and he he portrays himself as the pilgrim, having gone through this or yeah. going through the, this experience. So he doesn't sugarcoat it. Dante, the pilgrim, going through this experience, has to see. Yeah, no, it's real. Mm -hmm. it's, it's real. I mean, these people made choices, um, as as one of the penitents says. Um, as in life, so in death, mm. right? The things that we choose mm -hmm. in life, when we get to the afterlife, we're just going to see the logical extension or conclusion of those things. It's not yeah. that God imposes right. some kind of right. arbitrary punishment. No, no. Right. We, we... Formed a character. 
Right. Uh, we, we buried our, yeah. our, we dug our own graves, so yeah. to speak. You yeah. know, we, we prepared our place in hell yeah. by choosing the choice, making the choices that we did in, um, in on earth. Right. So yeah. he doesn't sugarcoat it, but, um, but if we do allow God to transform us, then the beauty of it is that, that no matter what our sinful inclinations, we give those over to God. We say, no, I, I choose you, Lord. I choose love. Mm -hmm transform me and he can take those weaknesses and they can become strengths yeah I was recently uh, talking to a priest that he he had a near-death experience and I always said what was it like I mean he really in his thinking he, he was thinking he was gonna die and he said because mm -hmm. uh, I, I sometimes I, I feel like at the end of seminary I my whole time in seminary, you know, I wanted to be a better student. You know, you mm -hmm. study a little bit every night, you keep up with all the reading, you do, you know, mm -hmm. and you never quite matched. At least I didn't. And then, at the last, my last semester, I said, "Okay, this has been a failed experience. Let's go into life." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I feel like I'm going to do that at the end of life." You know, I tried to be better. I tried to be better. <laughs> but he, this priest told me, he said, "You know, he just had a sense of trust." I thought it was mm -hmm. beautiful. You know, he had a sense of trusting God that okay. he was repentant of his sins and he, he trusted in the mercy of God. And, uh, mm -hmm. But I remember, it's funny you said that about you know, the repeated choices we make that I remember asking my father that one time. Said how He talked about, you know, I'm, somehow we were talking about why people go to hell and he, and he said, you know, if you're making those choices all along, you're going to make the same choice at the end of your life. You exactly know? <laughs> right. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. 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 No, Dante would definitely agree. Agree with that. Yeah. Uh, but God doesn't want uh, God doesn't want us right. to fail. He doesn't want us to go right. to hell. Right. And so that's another beautiful thing about the Divine Comedy is so many times and in so many ways, people are helping Dante mm. to get to the right destination. So right yeah. from the beginning. You know, famously, uh, he's, he's there in el mezzo del camino de nuestra vida, right in the mm. middle of this, this journey, mm. this path we call life. He's lost in a dark wood, and he's overwhelmed by, by the sight of these, you know, three beasts that stand in his way, and he, you know, he's, he's stuck. What am I going to do? Mm -hmm. And along comes Virgil, mm -hmm. um, you know, who has been sent to, uh, to help Dante right. along right. the path. Um, and then, you know, eventually Beatrice takes over mm -hmm. and, and takes him even further. And then finally, um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux is there to help mm -hmm. him in the final stages of the, of the parody. Mm -hmm. so, so one after another, um, and with the, the blessing of Our Lady, um, constant helps. And, and that's another message that Dante has is, you know, we're not alone in this. Right. We may feel lost, right. and lost in a dark wood like Dante yeah. is. Dante the everyman. The, mm -hmm. the, the, the character who stands in the place of any of us, right? right. He, he's choosing a hero here. Dante the Pilgrim is, uh, he's not an absolute villain, right? right? Then we would just condemn him. Then we yeah. would say, well, you know, like, like Shakespeare's Iago and Othello, we'd say, you know, he's just, mm -hmm. this is, you know, a, a, a villainous character. We write him off. So, so he's never that bad. We never mm -hmm. want to do that. But neither is he some kind of, idealized saintly character we look at and say well he's you know he's good and I'm glad he makes it to heaven but that could never be me because you know he's so much better than I am right. um, and so so he's this everyman character he is he's scared he's scared and at the beginning he says I don't want to do this mm -hmm. I don't want to do this sure you know St. Paul experienced the after went on a journey in the in, in the afterlife mm -hmm. uh, Aeneas in the Aeneid you know he went into the underworld but I am not Paul and I am not Aeneas. Right. So it's like, you know, I, 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 I want to check out here. I don't want to do this. And, and any of us could be, we can, we can picture ourselves yeah. in that situation. Yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, you know, Beatrice, the thought of Beatrice and his, his beloved Beatrice spurs him on. And so he agrees to undertake the journey. But the fact that he's constantly afraid, you know, he's constantly wanting to back out. Uh, he's constantly having reactions that Virgil has to correct him on. No, you know, don't sympathize with that sinner. <laughs> You're not supposed to be criticizing God here. <laughs> but no, it's very real. He's a very real human character. And I love that about Dante the Pilgrim. And um, it's a very strong encouragement for, for the reader to, to just hang in there, allow God to send us helpers to give us his grace above all 
to get us through to that final destination, the beatific vision. Yeah, I think that's such an important point in life. I feel like God's mm -hmm. hammering that in my own life. Mm. Since, you know, I, I can remember when I was ordained a priest, we had our, you know, the kind of this celebratory dinner, and I just, I remember saying something along the lines, you know, I just feel like a group project here. You know, so many people have helped us. And I think that's so important for the Christian that we mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. have to do it alone. Yeah. And why would you want to? It's a richer journey, right? If you have others helping you, if you can kind of... Well, this is, this is why I think literature can be so important, too, because mm -hmm. not only does God give us actual real people, mm -hmm. but then if you find literary characters who can encourage you, who can yeah. help you really um, take that imaginative leap mm -hmm. of, you know, what, it, what is it like to, um, to follow God, to truly love, if we can have characters in literature who uh, embody that for us, then we have friends for life. Right? We can pick up that book anytime mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and be encouraged and be strengthened, um, food for the journey, right? Right, right. And on hell, mm -hmm. he has, is Judas at the bottom? Yes, okay. Judas is at the very right. bottom, the ninth circle of hell. Right. Uh, yeah along with Brutus and Cassius, those are the three, and, and others, but those are the three that are, you know, sort of symbolically sticking out of the, the mouths of, of Satan in the right. ninth circle of hell. And um, so he's writing in the 1300s, right? Yes, yeah, he died in 1321. And to have such loyalty, like for ancient Rome, and like Brutus, I, mean, I, don't, oh, I don't get that. Oh, yeah, well, see, they symbolize uh, treachery. They hmm. symbolize treachery um, to, to the, the, the more we should have loyalty to someone, the worse that treachery is. So, mm. you know, he goes through different kinds of treachery mm. as he's going through their different, you know, kind of layers right. of that, that circle of hell. Um, but uh, um, the, uh, those traitors in uh, the very lowest level of hell are traitors to their Lord. And if you think about it, um, that that is the ultimate treachery. I mean, we can be, we can be traitors to our family, but you, at the end of the day, you could say, well, I didn't choose my, I didn't choose my family. <laughs> I didn't choose my family. Literally, tra traitors to kin is, is a higher level uh -huh. because, you know, I mean, it's not that it's excusable uh -huh. to be traitors, a mm -hmm. traitor to your family, but it's maybe a little more excusable mm -hmm. in, in, if you're a traitor to someone you didn't choose. But the Lord is the one to whom uh, we owe mm -hmm. the ultimate allegiance. We, right, you know, right. we make that choice to to follow our Lord. Uh -huh. uh, Judas made the choice to yeah. follow our Lord, and then he betrayed him. Right. Now, like Brutus' case would be against the government, right? Or well, against yeah. yes, that's well, yes, against. But he, but again, so we th we th we think of Shakespeare's it uh -huh. to Brute. Uh -huh. You know, he was he was a friend and follower of this political leader. Right. And so when you've done that, you've given your allegiance to someone, yeah. you've chosen yeah. that, and then you betray them. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the ultimate betrayal. Yeah. And the culture of the time, was it like a lot of factions, a lot of war, skirmishes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, in Italy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Italy in the early... Uh, 1300s, yeah. yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in Italy today, even the, you know, as I understand it, there are many, many different, you know, political groups, uh, all uh, often conflicting with one another. But it was certainly yeah. the case in Dante's time, and he was involved in politics. Right. You know, he he was um, a um, leader uh, of Florence for right. a time, and that's, that's how he got into some trouble and got caught on the wrong end of politics and was exiled, right. as you know, right for. Um, for the rest of his life. After the mm -hmm. early you know, um, beginning of the century, he was uh, turfed out, and um, partly through the machinations of Pope Boniface VIII, mm -hmm. whom Dante then announces will be, will be, will be entering hell. <laughs> <laughs> so he basically puts them in hell. Um, now, does that take away from, I mean, like, because yeah. I've, I've seen these theologians yeah. will use his work, you know, to, to ex on virtues and stuff, but yeah. you know, it sounds kind of personal, vindictive. You well, know. <laughs> I know. I, I, I would defend it this way, um, that um, in order to make his work real, mm -hmm. he had to 
create or put in the circles of hell characters who would be credible as actual people. Mm. He did not want to create just an allegory. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking of what J.R. Tolkien says about allegory. You know, he, mm. did, he didn't want to write allegory either because allegory encourages you, if you're writing pure allegory, you're encouraging the reader to jump over the liberal, literal level, excuse me, the literal level to the allegorical level. Right. But Tolkien, and I think Dante too, would say, but the literal level is important. The, mm. the level of the story should stand on its own. Mm. Yes, Dante was also writing with an allegorical intent. He makes that right. clear in his letter right. to Can Grande de la Scala, um, his patron. But, but the literal level was really important for him. He did not mm. want to bypass that. His characters are real, so much so that they are actual real people. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you could you could uh, you could one could accuse him of you know playing out bitty, uh, petty you know personal animosities in in his uh, writing, but I don't think that's what he was doing. After all, he some he put friends in there too. He put people he admired. His teacher mm -hmm. Brunetto Latini is is there in the seventh circle of of hell. Uh, and, and I don't think they gave Dante any pleasure to put him there, but mm -hmm. he had to recognize, okay, this, this guy, you know, that's where he deserved to be. Right. So I genuinely think this is Dante saying, you live like this, you live this way, mm -hmm. this is what your fate will be. This is the ultimate outcome mm -hmm. of your choices and behavior. Um, some of them happened to be people he didn't like or who, you know, were, were mean to him, uh, were, were vicious towards him. Um, but I think he was equally capable, as I say, of putting people he didn't, um, he, he did actually like uh, into hell and, and vice versa, right? People mm. that he didn't necessarily admire personally, but he could recognize, okay, these people had virtues and this is where they, they belong. And it certainly helped his readers, I would imagine, mm. right, to, to really concretely understand, okay, this is the kind of person he's talking about. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. And then the role of Beatrice, she's one of these guides. Beatrice. Yeah, there's so much to say about Beatrice. That is one of the things I love about the Divine Comedy and which you were asking me earlier, yeah. what do students respond well to? They really do respond well to the whole story of, of Dante's relationship to Beatrice. And one of the ways I, I encourage them to, to see it in its proper light, that whole relationship, is when I teach the Dante course, we start by reading a short work by Dante called La Vita Nuova. Uh, the New Life was the literal translation. And in that work, this is an early work, so it, it preceded the Divine Comedy. In it, Dante is expressing his love for Beatrice in a very earthly way. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, it goes some, somewhat, he, he idealizes her. She's this, you know, beautiful woman. Uh, you know, he's pining. He's, he's love-struck from, you know, the, mm. the age of eight <laughs> or nine. Uh, she was eight, he was nine, I think. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of over the top, wow. you know, this kind of romantic love. But that's the point, is mm. that that is where he was at mm. earlier in his life. He idealized this woman. He didn't really know her that well, but he ascribed to her all these all these uh, wonderful qualities, and then uh, and then kind of had this imaginary almost relationship with her, where she just you know he put her on a pedestal and then he worshipped her. Hmm. A lot of it is just kind of you know sublimated uh, lust, <laughs> uh, frankly. Uh, <laughs> there are some very carnal passages in the Vita Nuova, uh -huh. but but what makes that all of that interesting? is then how he transforms that love into a proper chaste love in the Divine Comedy, such that uh, he's able, to, he's inspired, his love for her inspires him to take the journey, which he needs to take. You know, this mm -hmm. is necessary for his salvation mm -hmm. to undergo this journey. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we get, when he gets uh, to the top of, um, of the uh, Purgatorio, um, he, uh, he's, he's chastised uh, by, by Beatrice for his um, failure to be really true to her. Um, you know, at a stage in his life, he, he kind of forgot about Beatrice and, and was um, enthralled with, uh, with philosophy, with Cicero. And, mm -hmm. and so she chastises him for that. Mm -hmm. And so he's, he's willing to be rebuked mm -hmm. and corrected mm -hmm. by, by this woman who then is teaching 
him in, uh, in the school of, of true love, of, of charity, ultimately, and love for God. So, well, I, Is yeah. she symbolic? I mean, she was a real person. She was a real person. Yeah. Beatrice Portinari. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And was she an allegory for something? Or? Again, I, I would be careful about using yeah. the word allegory because I think she's important to him as a person, as yeah. a real-life historical, right. you know, right. um, uh, 13th century uh, figure. So mm -hmm. it was in the, 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 the late 1200s that, that he related to her. Um, uh, I mean, I think, but I think, yes, she has an allegorical significance. Right. Uh, what does she, she can represent different things. We could certainly say that she represents grace, you know, mm. God's gift of himself to the soul mm. and, um, uh, and faith, right? She also mm. represents faith. Um, and so on various levels, yes, she does represent God's help to Dante in, in his life. Um, and uh, you might also say she represents the Virgin Mary as a virtuous woman, mm. you know, that kind of I ideal uh, feminine figure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Is the Virgin Mary in the story she, of Dante? Uh, yes, we oh. see her in, in uh, the upper levels of paradise, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this, would this be at the beginning of the Renaissance? Or? Ah, well, that's debated, right? <laughs> that's debated. I, I, would, I would tend to still call the, uh, called Dante a medieval figure. And okay. I think Petrarch, who's kind of the next generation for me, would be the beginning of the Renaissance. So I would say Dante is, is, is um, still medieval, and then Boccaccio, Petrarch, uh, represent the beginnings of the Renaissance in Italy. But there are those who call, who call Dante a Renaissance figure. I guess it depends how you interpret Dante. Do you mm. see him as a revolutionary figure, or mm. do you see him as kind of a, um, all of a piece, a continuation of uh, the medieval period that, that led up to, to Dante? I would say I would I would side with those who see him as kind of the culmination of the medieval area. I mean era. I mean everything he brings together in the Divine Comedy is thoroughly medieval. I mean it's Thomistic. St. Thomas is, is shot through, everything mm. in the Divine Comedy is shot through with St. Thomas. Mm. Um, he, he has new ways of presenting. I mean, it's very, it's, it's very creative. It's very imaginative. But I think the theology is fundamentally still medieval. Mm. Yeah, I'm fascinated too with, like just with preaching and rhetoric, and I've, I need to read. Aristotle and rhetoric artist not that long, but he, I was told that, like, I think he was talking about, you know, like speaking and that, mm -hmm. you know, the use of analogy mm -hmm. and there was no like formula or way of just to come. It's like he, I think he ascribed to it like as a genius, either someone's got that ability <laughs> to make the analogy or not. <laughs> right, right. And I, I absolutely love it. That's like I, I thirst for like in a movie or something, mm -hmm. when somebody makes an analogy like to capture the essence of what's going on or the story or the mm -hmm. real turning point or the moral, it just seemed like it clicks in a deeper way. Yeah. Like. Um, Yep, yep. We were talking about Oppenheimer earlier, and uh, mm -hmm. and I, I still it's like I didn't like the movie, and I don't <laughs> recommend it. But I mean, I guess you would call that an analogy. But he's mm -hmm. you know because there's discussion about uh, are you going to ignite the hydrogen in the atmosphere when you blow up the first atomic bomb? You know, there's some chance, mm -hmm. and uh, so people were worried about that, and it's kind of had some humor to it, even in the movie, and then. And later on, when he's trying to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons and stuff, and and then the movie ends, it's towards the end where he says, uh, basically, we do have this possibility of, of destroying the world because of all these weapons out there. Mm -hmm. And um, and I I just I don't know why that just struck me so much that um, you know just to have that way. I don't know. It's like beyond clever to me. There's something right, right. It, there's a richness there, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so so Dante was in that tradition, uh, which he is developing and inheriting from Saint Augustine. Right. And so, in his letter to Can Grande de la Scala, Dante outlines to go the different levels of allegory. So he talks about first of all, of course, the literal, um, the uh, the the moral, the moral level. Uh, then what he calls the allegorical, which is really, we could say, the Christological, mm 
And then the eschatological, right. right? The end times. So what does this passage say? If we read it on the level of the end times, what does it, yeah. what does right. it mean? And Dante is very sensitive to all four of these levels. And um, so we, we can read his work um, as, as, uh, as actually playing out on all those levels simultaneously. That's, that is one of the beautiful mm -hmm. uh, things about, about um, the Divine Comedy. So, you know, in that letter he talks about uh, the flight of the Israelites from, from Egypt and mm -hmm. how you can see that on these different levels. So, mm -hmm. just to continue that, that, um, that point a little bit, uh, the literal level is true, right? It mm -hmm. really happened. Mm -hmm. The Israelites really did leave, mm -hmm. leave escape mm -hmm. from the Egyptians. And, and again, Dante would say that's important. Let's not jump over, let's not jump yeah, over the literal. Yeah. Let's, let's remember that it's, it's real. But then uh, on the, the moral level, we can, we can see that as an allegory for the soul being delivered out of sin, mm -hmm. right? So that, we can see that, and that's, that's, I'm sure that's patristic even, just you know, seeing that mm -hmm. escape of the Israelites from Egypt as uh, the soul being um, uh, escaping from, yeah. from sin. The Christological level is almost the same, except it always involves Christ. So it's, mm -hmm. it's Christ delivering us from slavery to sin. Mm -hmm. And then the escal a, a greater bondage than I always like to say that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. he delivers us from a greater bondage yeah. than making bricks in the Egyptian hot sun. <laughs> He's right. delivering us from sin and death, and His blood is spilt on the wood. You know, before it's a Paschal lamb, now it's His mm -hmm. blood. That's, and John the Baptist, there's the Lamb of God. That's right? so beautiful. Yeah. Right. And then the, so finally, the eschatological would be. Um, seeing that uh, playing out uh, as a kind of final um, judgment, let's say mm -hmm. when, when we, we um, uh, when the last judgment happens, right. right? Then we are uh, delivered over from, from uh, slavery into the total freedom of, um, of heaven. Mm. Right? So um, Dante writes this all in his letter to Can Grande de la Scala and we can see uh, you know, really the whole journey of the Divine Comedy as, as an allegory on all these different levels, which mm. does, you're right, it makes mm. it so rich. Yeah. And then to take, you know, any passage and to, to um, uh, analyze it in this way right. gives right. us richer, even richer meanings than, than just the literal level. Yeah, 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 it's a deeper meaning. I, like with Tolkien, you know, in, in The Lord of the Rings that you know, the American version of hero, right, is like, mm -hmm. I think like the West, right, the Cowboys, and I'm trying to think of that movie with uh, Gary Cooper, he defends the town, you know. <laughs> he basically has to almost do it by himself, high noon, right? <laughs> His wife actually saves the day, so I guess it's not even true there. But <laughs> it's usually like the radical, rugged, independent guy. Oh, fights yeah, right. his, you know, Rugged individualist. <laughs> yeah. And then here in Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. Frodo fails, right? And, and Gandalf mm -hmm. protects Gollum. He still may have a role to play. Mm -hmm. And there's always some kind of reference to, I forgot the terminology, but like God is still directing this. He doesn't say God, but there's mm -hmm. a power force guiding this whole mission, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and Frodo fails to throw the ring. The only reason the ring's in the Mount Doom, Mordor, or whatever, is that the guy got his finger bit off <laughs> by this wicked Gollum, right? And I absolutely yeah, love yeah. that because yes. it's like, I, you know, it's so unexpected from like an American point of view, mm. but then it's the work of God's grace. You're not saved by your own efforts. You're not saved just trying harder, right? That right. God is guiding us. He is there with us. Right. And by grace, you know, we're saved. And uh, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. to come back to yeah. a novel that you referred to earlier, a writer that you referred to, uh, Evil and Waugh, uh -huh. and Brideshead Revisited, there's a similarity there in that, at the, I mean, these characters mess up their lives so badly. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and they really never do kind of rise above yeah. the mess of it. But at the end of the novel, when uh, I won't give away too much here in terms of you know, what, what actually oh, happens to the characters. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. But, but when, when Charles Ryder returns to Brideshead Revisited yeah. the Mansion, yeah. he goes to the chapel and the, 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 the red light of the chapel is still, is still flickering. It's mm -hmm. still uh, uh, lit, right? Yeah. And so we get the sense that despite all the messiness right. of our lives as human beings, God is still present and he's there to save us. And right. he, it's his saving action that redeems us, not our right. own, not our right. own pulling ourselves right. up by our bootstraps. Right, right. So 
Yeah, I think that's that's right. The the, the hero that we find in really uh, Christian Catholic literature is probably not going to be you know this impeccable um, knight in shining armor that um, that never gets wounded, right? Right. <laughs> Yeah. It's going to be someone flawed. It's going to be someone who probably falls flat on his face a number of times, yeah. as Dante does. I know Mother Angelica on air, she loved to talk about the apostles and like their failings and stuff. And, uh, mm -hmm. and the scripture scholars point out that you know, he gives testimony that the authentic, uh, how this is authentic writing, because if anybody was starting something, you wouldn't write about all these flawed characters. <laughs> Right. I mean, they're like, good point. Yeah, it's like you would you would write a book that showed the strength of these twelve men. You had to go out and right. and spread this strong, wonderful church, you know. But it's like mm -hmm. it's it's got surround. I mean, they all abandoned him for, except for John. Mm -hmm. you know, who would write that? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, you write about the history of Apple or Microsoft or whatever. It's just this ascending triumph. You know? yeah, but that's right. That's right. Yeah, and it's um, makes it all the more believable, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and Benedict, Pope Benedict, he wrote mm -hmm. this wonderful book. Uh, I think it's called the Communion. He's got this great mm -hmm. quote that, yeah, he said like Peter himself embodies that the church is not made up of these perfect people. You know, it's like sinners mm -hmm. on the way. Mm -hmm. That yes, the church is holy and has saints and means of salvation. But all the while, she's clutching sinners to her bosom, and that, you know, Peter is the image of denying our Lord, failed, having risen again through repentance, mm -hmm. you know, by mm -hmm. grace. Um, that is such a deep message. It, it's just so much shallower than having like this perfect hero, you know, just you know. So much deeper. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And I was sharing. I I was making this big retreat up at Madonna House, and. Um, and I brought with me Dante, fully intending, best intentions to, <laughs> I thought I was just going to read. I was so enthralled by Madonna House, I just wound up visiting with people. So most of the, yeah. I, I was there like a very active time. Well, they were slaying chickens and picking apples. And <laughs> there's, the, there's a great way of getting through the Divine Comedy I can recommend huh? maybe for some of your listeners, yeah, which is yeah. 100 Days of Dante. Hmm. And if you go, I think you just Google uh, 100 Days of Dante. Mm -hmm. And it'll bring you to a site where you can sign up to receive emails. I, I, I'm not connected to this. This is not a promotional right, thing right, on my part. Right. It's just something I think worth mm -hmm. sharing with your mm -hmm. listeners. And that's uh, so you sign up for this thing, and it'll send you reminders and and links to um, uh, uh, videos of um, academics or you know scholars speaking mm. about the individual canto cantos. And so you read a canto, you can decide how frequently, it could be every day, it could be every few days, right. but you read a canto and then you watch a video of a scholar speaking about, speaking in a very accessible way, I would, I would add, about um, each of the cantos. Wow. So um, it's a great way, you know, just kind of, again, just like uh -huh. with writing, you break it down into pieces. If you yeah. sit there and say, I want to read the Divine Comedy, well, good luck. <laughs> 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 but if you say, you know, I'm going to read yeah. a canto every few days and I'm going to watch a video that will yeah. help explain it and, and, and allow me to go deeper into what's happening uh -huh. in this canto, um, then, you know, you might get somewhere. Yeah. So yeah. that would be a, a bit of advice I would share with your readers or listeners. So if you just Googled that, 100 Days of Dante? Yeah, it should, should okay. get you there. Yeah. yeah. And you did recommend one translation, The Hollander, you said? I'm going to tell you a little bit about, I'm going to say two different. Uh -huh. I'm going to say two different ones. I mean, there are many beautiful translations out there, many, many ones. And I do appreciate Anthony Esselin's. <coughs> mm. It's a great translation. Um, but, but there are two in particular I would recommend for different reasons. Actually, mm -hmm. there's a third. <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to live. Five myself. years at Oxford, you have a <laughs> Well, I think the Hollander one is the one that I use for my Dante course. It's Robert and Jean Hollander. And the reason I choose them is I find that it's the best combination of fidelity in translation, mm -hmm. sticking to the, the meaning uh, mm -hmm. accurately to the meaning of the of the Italian. But also um, some excellent explanatory notes. So the commentary, the the, the notes to uh, the Divine Comedy are also excellent and, ver and very robust, very full. So I think that if you're only going to take one, uh, there's also the Italian and English side by side, so you can also refer to the Italian if you want. 
but as a, as a total package, I think it has, has the most for one mm. translation. Having said that, um, I would also say just for readability of translation, if you want maybe one of the easier ones, I find uh, Mendelbaum. Mendelbaum's translation is one of the most accessible. Um, it, um, he doesn't try to keep the rhyme. He has uh, blank verse. So it's got the structure, but it, uh, the, the, the rhythm, the meter of um, iambic pentameter, but it doesn't, he doesn't try to make it, make it rhyme in the way that the Italian does with the terza rima. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that means he has more freedom to just kind of um, say things in, in a more ordinary way, if I could put it that way, as a more kind of accessible way. Mm -hmm. So it might be a good one for some of your readers to start with. But then at the other end of that spectrum, there's Dorothy Sayers. And mm. what's, what's lovely about her translation is precisely the opposite. She does keep uh, the, the, the terza rima, so the A, B, A, B, C, B, mm. C, D, C um, mm. rhyme scheme. Mm. It's very musical and beautiful. Mm. Uh, it's a bit dated, you know, mm. uh, but, uh, but very musical. And it gives you a good sense, you know, short of actually reading the Italian, it gives you a sense of what the Italian poem sounds like or feels like um, mm. musically. Mm. Uh, so I do really enjoy, and her notes are also excellent. I, 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 do, um, some, I, do, I do think that, that uh, her translation can be good for classroom, classroom use as well, both because of the musicality of the language and because of um, the, the extensive notes, which are, you know, she was a high Anglican, so she really understood um, even though she wasn't Roman Catholic herself, mm. but so close that her notes are really excellent in terms of giving the theological context and, mm. and explication of what, da what Dante is doing. Um, I really do value hers as well. Anthony Eslin's is great, not as extensive with the notes, so it's more, um, it's more kind of for uh, a layman's you know, enjoyment of the poem mm. and appreciation of the poem. Um, it's, it's also an excellent translation. So there are many, many options, um, but Hollander is right. the one I tend to favor in the classroom. Mandelbaum, I tend to, to sort of uh, recommend if, as someone's first, mm -hmm. first attempt at reading it, kind of for pleasure or just for, mm -hmm. for knowledge. And maybe we'll go ahead and read it for our listeners. This, this caught me on my retreat. It's just mm -hmm. first sign of the inferno. Uh, midway on our life's journey, I found myself in dark woods, the right road lost. To tell about those woods is hard, so tangled and rough. And I thought, wow. I just, I, mean, I think everybody, right, at some point, if you live long enough, you hit some kind of dark woods. Yep. And it seems like, and somebody was saying that too, like with faith, <laughs> you know, we don't have all the answers. We don't know many times, like, what is the right road? You know, we have this faith that we have to trust God and you know, make some choice, I guess, make a decision. Mm -hmm. But that's like, what do I do here? I'm running a college. Okay, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> you know? What do I do? <laughs> I, I've been getting an answer to that really recently. Oh, uh, really? Unless, yeah, did no. you want to finish that point? Uh, well, you just, go ahead. Well, just the last point. point. Yeah, yeah, to tell about those woods is hard, so tangled and rough. I love that part too, because it's mm -hmm. like, I, I've got some good friends. I've got some friends that, um, some older gentlemen in my life that can help kind of mentor me at times, but there's some things like you can't explain. Or like, mm. I don't know, maybe the modern psychologist would say like whatever family of origin stuff's getting triggered in you, you know, we're a mystery. <laughs> right. You know, and it's yep. like, I don't know why this is driving me crazy, you know, but it, <laughs> it is, right? And uh, so anyway, but that. Well, no, that's great. Yeah. I would just, I was just going to add that, uh, in some ways, for me, the, the end point of, of Dante's Divine Comedy comes back to answer the beginning point. Mm. And very, very much in a personal way right now, I'm, I'm hearing this word, contemplation. Because mm. what he arrives at after the, all that arduous journeying is a point of contemplation. He beholds the beatific vision, and that's kind of the meaning, in retrospect, of the whole journey. That's what it was... You know how Aristotle says, you know, that everything that we do, we have to do with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. Well, let's do life with that end in mm -hmm. mind. If our end is contemplation, mm -hmm. then let's live life so that it, it leads us there. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do that by injecting contemplation throughout our days. Mm -hmm. And so what do I do as president? I'm learning. It's a journey, right? But 
I'm learning to work my days around that contemplation. Mm -hmm. And we had a retreat this summer with our, our chaplain, Father Brian Christian, he was Christie from Madonna House, mm -hmm. and he was talking about uh, teaching and working from rest. Mm -hmm. and, and rest here really meant contemplation, the recollected life. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't go out in a frenzy trying to get all these things done and then sneak a little prayer in. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> I pray and contemplate and out of that contemplation flows the work that I have to do. Oh. It's, it's really life-changing. Um, yeah. it's, it's probably the project of the rest of my life to, to really yeah. try to live that out. But it, it is certainly an inspiring thought. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, just like the discipline of, of the spiritual life. I think I keep coming back to John Paul II. I just think about his amazing life and to have mm -hmm. that burden of the papacy for like, 26 years. And, you know, but in younger life, he was like late for things. They used to call it Votiwa time. Oh, he was late for I a didn't wedding. Know yeah, I was reading a story. He's like, an, I think it was over an hour late for a wedding. Right? Oh, my goodness. In America, that would be, <laughs> I mean, Forget they it. would have your head, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, you know, he would, you know, as a pope, he had a, a rigorous schedule. You know, he'd, he'd get that prayer in the morning, especially, I understand, at the you know, he had his private mass. I mean, he had people who were there with him, but, um, but you know, praying before mass, maybe pray the rosary, like in the afternoon, you take a walk in the guards and stuff. But I, you know, I would think it's like, okay, I've got this impossible meeting tomorrow. I got to spend some extra time on preparation. So I'll do the prayer later. You know? oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, it's so easy to fall into. Yeah. That. Yeah. So, is, yeah. I, yeah. So does it, you hear it that way? Like, like, I have to have the discipline to do this kind of prayer early or whatever. And Right, yeah, right. It's yeah. making it the priority mm -hmm. so that um, other things have to fall into place around that. Not, yeah. you know, I have to squeak the, the, squeeze the prayer in where I can. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing to yeah. achieve. And I think like Dante, uh, we just have to keep getting up uh, after we fall flat on our faces. Right, right. <laughs> keep, right. keep striving. For that, for that ideal, yeah. but but uh, and it's fun to see, know. like, like as we were talking before, like you know, life hacks are so popular, like these short little articles on productivity and everything. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, so to get that, get the that kind of stuff, you know, first things first, you know, yeah. get that prayer in early. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, one of the things one of these people were saying, the guy was talking about, okay, fitness. The one thing that, you know, if you have this quality, you, know, you will not fail. And it's like, to not give up trying, you know? And I thought, you know, I think about like Teresa of Avila saying that's one of the most vital of virtues, right? Is uh, that perseverance, mm -hmm. that, you know, not to, you know, if you keep getting up again and trying and trying to get a little bit better today. And um, mm -hmm. yep. I, had the, I had the most moving interview. I don't know if you saw the movie about Father Stu. He was uh, an American oh, priest. I've heard about it. I haven't seen the movie, no. Yeah, he he was out in Montana. I think he died like in 2015 or so. And mm -hmm. he developed something like Liz Gehrig's disease in seminary, I think. Mm -hmm. And his his priest pray, his bishop prayed about it and ordained him. And he lived something like seven years, I think. And, and I was talking to his sister, who wasn't Catholic. And I said, you know, when you think about your brother... Uh, what is the most usual common thing you'll think about inflecting on his life, you know? And he said, she said, when I get up in the morning, you know, I think I can stand up on my own. You know, I can, hmm. I can brush my teeth, you know, I can just begin my day. She says, and then I think, um, too, that, you know, what good can I do a little bit more than yesterday, oh, you yeah. know? And it was funny because we did this hour. I, went, I flew out to Montana for the for the opening of this movie. I interviewed like some priest friends. I interviewed a guy with a STL priest that was great at putting theology and contextualizing his life and heard all these great details of his life and lay friends and all this stuff. And then I interviewed her and I think we used like only three or four minutes from her interview, but we had it at the very end. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, he made, he had that effect on everybody. He had that, mm -hmm to have everybody like want to try a little bit harder to be better today, yeah. Yeah, you know? Because he was struggling so much, he's yeah. growing paralysis. You know, he's like, 
you know, still trying to offer mass in you know, a very uh-huh. limited way and yeah. all this and meeting with people and all this. And uh, mm-hmm. I said, she said more in two minutes than the rest of the show. <laughs> you know, it was like, um, right. but anyway, so we just talk about that quality of uh, perseverance. Well, speaking of life hacks, I said this to you earlier, but I, I, I'll just say it here on the podcast is uh, um, you know, people are always talking about uh, goals. Mm-hmm. You know, right, life right, goals, that's a right. big thing these yeah, days. Yeah. Life goals, uh-huh. what are your life goals? Well, I like to think, um, you know, Dante teaches us to talk about afterlife goals. Mm. What's, your, <laughs> what's, your goal, what's your goal for, you know, after? Steve, Stephen Covey talks about in his um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You know, imagine what you want people to say about you at your funeral. Right. I and mean, that's kind of shape your whole life to, to work towards that, what they're going to say about you at your funeral. And I think he just didn't go quite far enough. You got to go after the funeral. <laughs> after the funeral. <laughs> what happens after that? <laughs> right, right. Not to lose sight of that. And, yeah. and what, on the beatific vision, is there something from there that touched you that maybe made you think of heaven in a different way than... Um, wow. Um, it's a very complex image. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's even hard to describe how he's describing it. Yeah. I mean, these these three circles that are kind of interlocking and, mm-hmm. and spinning, and um, but it's an image of infinity, mm. um, and uh, it's uh, but it's also very incarnational. He sees Christ in there. He sees yeah. Christ in that in that threefold in the, the Trinity. Um, I think above all, it just it just impacts me with the mysterious nature, like mm. how far beyond our human understanding, yeah, yeah. how far beyond our human understanding the Trinity is, right. and, and the beatific vision would be. I mean, it would be so infinitely uh, rich that mm-hmm. we could never exhaust mm-hmm. the meaning and the beauty of it. Mm. So um, that's wow, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, if if you're busy in your day and you you take a moment to to read that and reflect yeah. on it. Yeah, it really it really transforms your your inner state to, right. to a, a more recollected state. I think. Yeah, and the the world. I mean, Bishop Barron talks about you know, evangelization, how vital beauty is to that. Like for young people, especially, yes. there's this immediacy to it. It can just strike the heart. You know, mm-hmm. we crave that in a mm-hmm. kind of a cult of ugliness in our world today, in many ways. Um, yeah. So, and then like yeah, we get you see like. I think Augustine would talk about the vestiges, mm-hmm. or traces, or Bonaventure, you know, these footprints of God leading mm-hmm. us to Him, the beauty itself. And mm-hmm. you know, because when I first entered the community, I thought, okay, we're Franciscan. I gotta, you know, I gotta recognize all this deep stuff in nature and all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was always, I always loved the outdoors. I grew out, grew mm-hmm. up in a rural area and stuff, in woods and things. But I, I just came to appreciate just the small simple things you know like a a pretty day a sunny day a breezy day the leaves doing whatever yeah. just maybe some pleasantness of a nice breeze or rain you know true, true you know? yeah yeah like even very simple things and how nurturing it is you know how calming and peaceful it's like we crave that mm-hmm. music too right i mean yeah, music has yeah. that and especially gregorian chant has that simplicity that's why mm-hmm. it's the music for the ages i mean it's uh yeah. you can never really tire of it done done simply but well right right and that's been a draw for you like with poetry like why yeah is that is the beauty of poetry and the expression there and things and right i mean um what is it about poetry, right, that, that's distinctive, mm-hmm. that differentiates it, let's say, from prose, from, from novels, what have you? And it is that attentiveness to language. Mm. I think with, with, with prose, you know, you might be able to say something a little bit differently and, and you'd still have the same message. Right. But with poetry, I mean, I'm thinking of Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message, but the way mm. that you're saying it is so much a part of the message that they're in, inextricable. You can't you can't separate them. Mm-hmm. So you've got let's say a poem by by W. B. Yeats, um, "The Lake Isle of Innisfree," and you've got mm-hmm. the last stanza there. Um, I will arise and go now, for always night and day I hear lake water lapping with low sound by the shore. Mm-hmm. Right, just think about that line. Mm-hmm. I hear lake water lapping with low sound <laughs> by the shore. He's got three L yeah. sounds at the beginning. Right, He's got right. you know big alliteration yeah, going yeah. on there. Um, but that, that lusciousness of the, of the language 
mirrors or matches the lusciousness of the that natural sound. setting yeah. that, he's, that he's describing, right. the lake water lapping mm -hmm. by, with low sound by the shore. Um, so there, yes, you're right. I mean, there is something about poetry that, that speaks to me on a very profound level um, that where, where meaning, but the, also the way that we express meaning are so closely interwoven that they're inseparable. Mm. And the beauty is both in the meaning and in the way that it's expressed. Right. There's just something, um, you know, when it happens, when it clicks, it's just, it's so uplifting. Right. It can take us into that contemplative space, frankly. Right. Again, that, I'm on a contemplation kick, but you know, it takes <laughs> that into, it, us into that place of recollectedness, of uh -huh. reflection. I find poetry can definitely do that for mm -hmm. me, and I think for many people, um, if they can take the time to slow down. And you can't, you can't speed read poetry. Mm. Just by definition, you can't, because mm. you're not allowing the language to settle into your, your psyche. Right. So you have to read it slowly. Um, people talk about slow food these days. You know, mm. when you, you take your the time mm. to cook something well. Mm -hmm. Well, poetry is like slow food for the mind. Mm. You have to take the time to digest it, to read it and digest it slowly, right. or you're not really reading it. Yeah. You know, I'm taken by too, like especially like in the scriptures and stuff. And when people preach, sometimes they rephrase things, and it strikes you in a new way. It's like this. Same truth, but it's now surprising. I haven't heard it put that way. I'd imagine poetry is mm. like that to describe. Definitely, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Hopkins is the king of, <laughs> you know, of doing that. So, yeah. you know, a line like, um, uh, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. Right. Mm. Well, you could say that in ordinary prose, you know, mm. oh, things are fresh. <laughs> Sounds like you're in the grocery store <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> looking at the lettuce. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but right. the way he says it, yeah. there lives the dearest freshness, uh. deep down things. Oh, the, mm. alliter the alliteration, the, the, uh, the even rhythm of the, of the poetry, um, it, uh, it speaks to us, it, it hits us uh, at a different level than just, you know, the prosaic, the ordinary speech. There's like um, conveying information. Right, that, right. Yeah, because mm -hmm. yeah, I've heard writers describe beauty, there's a surprising element to beauty. You know, it's like something's there that shouldn't, that's unexpected, that maybe shouldn't be there. Like mm -hmm. you walk around a corner in the woods, maybe you see the sunset or something, mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and you're mm -hmm. surprised by, it's not the usual thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a poem I like, and, and this is not one that I see quoted a lot recently, um, um, but E.E. Uh, e. Cummings was a, a 20th century mm. poet. He was something of a, I think he was a Unitarian. I'm pretty sure he was mm. a Unitarian, so he believed in, in mm -hmm. at most one God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but he had a way of, uh, of, of putting, putting, turning things around in surprising ways yeah. in, in, in poetry. Like, for example, just one line will, will give you a, an experience yeah. of what I'm talking about. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. Right. <laughs> Obviously, most of us would say, I thank you, God, for this most amazing day. Right. But when he just changes those two, two words around, uh -huh. amazing and most, I, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. You suddenly have to stop and read it again and think about what he's saying. Yeah. Do you know yeah, what I'm saying? Right, yeah. right, yeah. right. Wait, I don't know poetry, but I remember another one he wrote, I think it was about a woman, he said, he said, like, not even the rain has such small hands. <laughs> I, just, I just love that. There's something about mm -hmm. the delicacy of this woman that, you mm. know, I think you wrote that, but it was, uh, mm. but I, I like that one poem you happen to mention, you know, it is, mm -hmm. you know, the amazement of it. Yeah, I don't hear yeah. too much, uh, people don't talk so much about E.E. E. Cummings lately, I yeah. don't know why. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure his theology was off, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it, as long as we, you know, recognize it for what it is. I think yeah. he had that, that gift of surprising us with language, and that's good. If we can be surprised out of our complacency, out of our kind of um, chronos time into mm. cosmos time, yeah. this is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, there was another passage in my short reading of Southeast Ferdinand, but he, mm -hmm. he says... 
He, he says, if I have un understood your words aright, replied the shade of that great-hearted man, mm -hmm. your spirit has been bruised by cowardice, which many a time so weighs a man's heart down, it turns him from a glorious enterprise, as shadows fool the horse that shies away. You know? mm. I love that. You know, we, Mother Angelica used to talk about how we get talked out of doing great things. We talk ourselves out of doing great things you know, for the Lord and stuff. Mm -hmm. But as shadows fool the horse, you know, we're turned from a glorious enterprise. That, and, it, you know, it might not be this great big fat showy thing, mm -hmm. but maybe I'm going to reach out in charity. Maybe I'm going to forgive. Maybe I'm not going to be petty today. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, and right, it's glorious right. in God's eyes. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a resplendent life if we make that exodus event out of our selfishness and <laughs> leave, leave our land for a new land, you know. And, Absolutely. That's uh, a big, big thing to do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking oh, with us. Oh, my pleasure. Yep. Yeah. Thank you very and, uh, much for having me.